We just finished an incredible week serving God here. It was truly a privilege to uh, host a vacation Bible school at our church campus. We had uh, lots of kids here, ages from four to sixth grade, and it was pretty busy, very, very full. It was a great time uh, praying for more fruit from that. God would take his word and spin it into their hearts. I think the greatest joy for me and has been for the last four years has been able to open up God's word and to teach it. Uh, it's been said if you can't teach you know, the Bible to four-year-olds, you really shouldn't get up and preach. So it's a challenge sometimes to be able to teach God's word to four-year-olds up to sixth grade and older. And, and, and I enjoy it, being able to explain the gospel every week and hearing from parents that they have attended other VBSs and they're thankful that we do that. And, and to me, what else am I gonna teach? You know, what else am I gonna say about the gospel? So it's been great, you know, and I'm thankful for all the people that dedicated time to work in VBS. You know, there were some who took vacation, who took vacation at work to come here and serve. So amazing, praise the Lord. Thank you so much for your time and your service. Thanks to everyone who prayed and for those that were here praying. You know, God is good, God answers prayer, so thank you for that. Uh, but one, one, one person that kept rolling around in my mind during the week was Joseph. It was Joseph and all that we've been talking about these last five weeks. You know, that, that Joseph at, at 17 knew something about God that would help him as he's thrust into just trial after trial. He, he knew God. He knew especially that God was with him. And as much as I want to protect my own kids from pain and turmoil, and I want to protect all of those kids that sat in front of me every week, I, I recognize those kids will, will have experiences of tremendous heartache and pain and trials. And some have already, before they even came in this week. And my flesh wants to stop it. My flesh wants to say, no, I don't want them to experience that. And my spirit knows that's what God uses and allows. Few people will experience the comparable circumstance like Joseph. His his was a tragic set of circumstances, one after another, but God never left him. And Joseph recognized that when someone sinned against him, God was still up to something good in his life and in theirs. And the wicked brothers, their sin of selling him into slavery was used by God to bring God's people to Egypt in fulfillment to his plan given to Abraham years before. And if only we were able to recognize that God's gracious work continues even through the sins of others, perhaps then we would be better prepared to learn how to forgive others and to do it. Forgiving people is seldom easy. And in real life, forgiveness is hard. It's, it's messy. It's often accompanied with pain and suffering. For 20 years, Joseph couldn't see a single scrap of evidence that God was going to work out this detail with he and his brothers. And oftentimes, God's plan for our good is not always simple and transparent. It doesn't always quickly come to an end. Sometimes, friends, you need a church family to come alongside you and to help you discern. To come alongside and pray for you and just be there. Because we all have affliction. We all have troubles. And I recognize this morning as I stood here, this week in front of 
Lots of kids that many of them will have years of affliction ahead of them, of pain. That's a result of living in a sin-cursed world. And in affliction, that's the soil by which the fruit of repentance and endurance and perseverance and hope most richly grows. And that's why we sought to teach them about God. What do they need to know as they leave? They need to know God. They need to know him. It'll be for their betterment, for our betterment, if we know God, if we walk with him, if we can better understand who God is and how he works it will help us. And as we've seen through the story of Joseph, it'll help us to learn how to forgive as God has forgiven us. See, Joseph will teach us and most perfectly we'll see it in Jesus Christ. So I wanna pray and we'll get started here this morning. So I'll pray for you, you pray for me. God, we thank you that we can gather together to worship you and we recognize that you are worthy of worship. You are worthy of our focus, of our, of our setting aside other things this week, other pressing things that maybe are coming into our minds. We can set those aside and focus on worshiping you this morning. And I ask for your people that you would help them, that they would be able to see and understand your word as we walk through these chapters, that they would see and understand how you work and how most specifically you worked in Joseph's life and his brother's life and and Jacob, and in the, the nation of Israel, see your plan, that you haven't forgotten them. And may, they, may your people here this morning understand what forgiveness looks like. And may they leave this place knowing how to do it, how to forgive others in their lives. And we'll be sure all, to give you all the honor and glory at what we learn and what we understand here this morning. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. We're in Genesis chapter 45. If you have a Bible there that's provided in the chairs, it's on page 36, and we encourage you to turn there. We're really just gonna walk through these chapters. So if you don't have a Bible open, you're gonna get lost, okay? So have the Bible open there, whether it's the Bible provider, the one you have, or on your phone, and look through there, Genesis 45. And the first is, is, is really a good day. Do you ever have those days that are so enjoyable that they're hard to forget? If you remember from last week, if you were here, Joseph is face to face with his brothers and they have proven again God's work of repentance in their lives. And then it ends there. We ended in chapter 45 of Judah standing before them, willing to take the place of their younger brother, Benjamin, in prison. And then we come to chapter 45, verse one. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him with when Joseph made himself known to his brothers and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. It's been quite a roller coaster story here for Joseph. It's quite a surprise to his brothers but, but not only them, to the Egyptians. He, he held this, Joseph held this truth close to the vest, not only to test his brothers, but also to protect them. Can you imagine what had been to happen to them if the, the brothers, to, if the Egyptians had found out what they did to their leader? And perhaps you don't realize this, but the revelation of Joseph's identity 
to his brothers was also a revelation of his brother's identity to Pharaoh and to the people, a revelation of what they did to him 20 years ago. And as it says in verse three, they're speechless. Can you blame them? I mean, seriously, they truly believe that their brother was dead as a result of their actions. They lived 20 years with that on their conscience. They're floored. Remember, they were fooled into thinking that Joseph was an Egyptian in every way. He, he abided by the customs. He dressed like an Egyptian. He spoke the language. Remember, he had to have a translator there. And what a shock to realize in this moment that Joseph heard everything that they said to one another. Can you imagine that? I'm sure in that moment, they're running down every conversation in their head. They probably felt exposed and naked. If you've never traveled to another country, you've not quite experienced this. You know, and living in Sweden for a period of time, there were moments where, where we'd be on a train and, and, and you'd see an American come in and they're talking and they're talking about things they probably shouldn't talk about in public, assuming that everyone speaks Swedish and they can't hear. And then you're kind of following along like, yeah, I hear what's going on. And they feel naked, exposed. Oh, you heard that. And they start rewinding all the things they probably shouldn't have said in public. I can imagine this is what the brothers were doing. You, you heard everything. You heard all that we said. They probably even felt foolish now recognizing, well, they didn't recognize Joseph. They didn't, they didn't see him. I mean, he, he sure did know a lot about him. He even seated them in order from the youngest and oldest. How could they have missed it? How could they have missed it? But maybe more importantly, they were horrified at the situation they're in now. Remember, Joseph had spoken harshly with them and put them in jail and even kept one of their brothers in prison when they went home. Perhaps there's a, a twinge of fear of what Joseph would do next. Here, Joseph has him right where he wants them. Is he going to get revenge? You know, he could inflict tremendous amount of pain now. What will Joseph do? Verse 4. Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the fam has famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be not, neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant on earth and to keep you alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. And here we learn about Joseph's theology. What we, we learn what he knows and believes about God. And, and, and here we also find one of the most comprehensive displays of the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's freedom. Joseph doesn't work to release the tension between the two. He just states the facts. There, there are three times in these five verses that Joseph plainly says, you sold me into Egypt, but God was behind it. He repeats this to make sure they understand what they have done, their sin. But at the same time, Joseph states clearly the sovereignty of God. Do you see it? God sent me before you to preserve life. He most clearly states 
that they are responsible for their actions. His brothers don't get a free pass on their sin simply because God uses it for his own purposes. And this is important for us to understand. God did not force these men to sin and to sell them. They did exactly what they intended to do of their own volition, of their own desires. There was no coercion. This is important for us to understand. The 1689 Second London Baptist Confession, I believe, is helpful. I want you to listen as I read it. God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby is God neither the author of sin nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty of contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established, in which appears his wisdom disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. And in that, he's stating again God's sovereignty. And God is not the author of sin. But God is still sovereign and control over everything. And people may ask, why would God use sinful men in order to carry out his decree? And I was reminded again this week in reading and studying, the answer is, where is God going to find sinless men? There's only one, and he's not in this story. Where is God going to find sinless men? There are no sinless men. Paul tells us, all fall short of the glory of God. So everything God does to bring about God's plan involves sinful men and their sinful actions. And God is sovereign over everything. He is control over everything. And that thought either, either brings you comfort or pain. Some of us get tripped up by this, by the events of our lives. We, we wonder why bad things happen to good people. Decent people. You perhaps think that Joseph might have asked that question over the 13 years he spent in prison. I don't think he did. Because what kept him going was his theology, what he believed about God. And our problem is that we, we too often think of God as altogether like us. We project onto him our own little perspectives and our finite wisdom and our very short-sighted strategies. God must work like we work. We really think that, that God should act as if humans are truly at the center of the world and the purpose of the universe. And don't you find that true in the culture in which we live? Don't you even find it perhaps true, lingering in your hearts? This is the basic sin of all. Who is at the center of your life, truly? Who do you think of most? We make ourselves, in a thousand different ways, the center of the world. It's all about us. Martin Luther was right when he said, sin is homo curvatus in C in Latin, which means man curved in on himself. Sin is ultimately selfishness. Humanity turned in on itself. We want to sit on the throne of our life. 
It's all about us. It's about our needs and our wants and our desires. It's about me, me, me. But what we need to be reminded of this morning is there we're, we're not on the throne. There's someone who is much better qualified. God is on the throne. And maybe we need to simply begin each morning by praying, God, help me to keep you at the center. Help me to keep you at the center. Just that simple reminder might change the way that we act and think and react to our days and our relationships. God, help me, remind me that you're on the throne. We need to comfort ourselves this morning with the doctrine of God's sovereignty. To find peace in the fact that God can overturn your bad decisions and he can work through your faults and the faults of other people and he can remove your transgressions and use the sins of others for your good and for his glory. Friends, do you believe this today? He says again for us, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. This is the theology of Joseph. Does your theology lead you to respond the same way? Does your theology lead you to respond this way to the sins that come upon you from others? It was Joseph's theology applied to his circumstances that allowed him to respond the way that he does to his brothers. It's when, though, when we're ignorant of God, of his ways, that we're prone not to forgive, to hold grudges, to have hatred towards others. Friends, accepting the sovereignty of God releases you to forgive others. See, Joseph understands this. And then the text says, Joseph brings them close. You can only imagine what they're thinking at this point bringing us close and flabbergasted at seeing their brother that they had given away. And now he wants them close. What is he going to do? What a, what a uncomfortable moment this must have been, but coming to terms with our sin is uncomfortable. But Joseph relieves all the stress in that moment and tells them not to worry. And then he says in verse nine, hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children, your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. And there I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all honor in Egypt, all of my honor in Egypt, of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them, and after that, his brothers talked with him. See, his, his, his theology is on full display. He is clear that God has overruled their sin, overruled their evil intentions, and he will not hold them ransom. He does not insist on them paying for their sins. He is gracious and welcoming to them. And William Temple once said, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. This is what we see in Joseph. God's work in his life. He is a different man, and he now calls for his father. He wants to see his dad. But continuing, look at verse 16. 
When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beast and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Do you see the irony at all? If you, if you read the, the scriptures and you read past Genesis and Exodus, do you see the irony in this? The parallel between the entrance into Egypt and then later their exit from Egypt. When, when they come, Pharaoh is joyful and gives them permission. Like, here, I'll give you all the best stuff, right? But what happens when they leave? He grudgingly says, go. After a long time and a lot of pain. And when they come, Joseph is the Hebrew that directs them into the land. And when they leave, Moses is the Hebrew that directs their exit. And when they enter the land, Pharaoh's chariots escort them in peacefully. And what do we read in Exodus? The chariots chase them out of Egypt. The irony. When they enter the land, a small bunch, 70 folks, it says, but when they leave, they're a nation, millions. See, God planned it all this way. And if God can plan this perfectly for the nation of Israel, he can handle your life too. Verse 25, so they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob and they told him Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt and his heart became numb for he did not believe them. But when he told them all the words of Joseph, what he had said to them and when he saw the wagons, that Joseph is sent to carry him, and the spirit of their father revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. What a day. What a day for Jacob. For 20 years, he believed that he sent Joseph to his death to check on his brothers. For 20 years, he believed he would never see Joseph again. For 20 years, he mourned and lived in sadness for how God was going to fulfill his promise now. How was God going to do it? Joseph or Jacob had to move on. He had to, like anyone who has ever lost a loved one, they had to find a way to honor the memory of them, but they had to move on with life. But now this day, he learns that Joseph is alive and he's numb, he's cold. He, how could this be? Are you telling the truth? Perhaps he didn't believe the, the brothers at this point. It's a lie. Can he trust them? But it's the text says he sees the wagons. And they're all sinking. Joseph is alive. God is faithful. Do you see the wagons in your life? Maybe when everything seems to be pressing in against you and all you see is the pressing in to look out and see how God's provided. Time and again, how has God provided for you? Have you recounted that lately? Maybe that should be the topic over lunch this afternoon. Well, that's chapter 45. Let's look at chapter 46, the moving day. How quickly we are to pro prone to, to give up in life and how quickly we are to lose faith. Jacob seems so many instances to have given up, to throw in the towel, but, but God keeps drawing him back. And then in verse one, it says, so Israel, Jacob, took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And then he said, I am God, the God of your father, 
Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. God breaks his silence. Since the story began of Joseph in Genesis 37, we've only seen evidence of God through his providence. He was there every step of the way with Joseph, but we've never heard a direct word from him. Now, the people are about to leave the land of promise, and God speaks to remind them of his covenant faithfulness to them. The great I am will be with them as they journey to Egypt. God essentially says to them, I was faithful to your father, and I'm going to be faithful to you. And this offers so much hope now to Jacob. But he also offers a, a round-trip journey to Egypt because he will bring him back. Joseph will be there, though, he says, when he dies. But God will bring Israel out of Egypt. There's so much in these statements, and we can't get into all of it this morning. God doesn't tell him of all that his people will suffer at the hands of the Egyptians. 400 years of oppression and bondage. He simply says, I am God, I am in control, you can trust me, and I will bring to pass all that I've promised you. And how comforting those words were to Jacob. In verse 5, then Jacob sent out for Bathsheba, the sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones, and their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry them. Also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought into him with, into Egypt. And what we see is Jacob coming with the entire family to Egypt. Nothing stayed behind. This is a promise of God now in this beginning phase and stage. It's a wholesale move. They bring everything. And Joseph had longed to return home, I'm sure, for years. Now think of it, home is coming to him. God is creative, isn't he? We'll skip down to verse 26. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's son's wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. And he had sent Judah ahead of him to, to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you're still alive. What an amazing scene this is. The long, lost son is back. And in verse 31, Joseph said to his brothers and his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from your youth even till now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is abomination to the Egyptians. So why, did, why did God move this family away from the promised land to Egypt? But as we read and as we've looked backwards, in Canaan, they were in danger of losing their identity as a distinct family. There was intermarriage happening. The, the family was ultimately breaking apart. And so God in his providence removes them and places them in the land of Goshen. The Egyptians did not mix with shepherds, so there would be no chance of intermarriage leading to the loss of identity. But the truth of the matter is that Jacob's family had not been a good influence on the culture. 
they had scandalized and pillaged and wrecked havoc on their community. They were most definitely not a good witness of the God they say they served. So it's a fair question to ask ourselves this morning, what kind of witness are we to our community? What kind of witness are you to your neighbors, to your coworkers, to your friends? Do you give the impression that we hold different beliefs, different values than our culture? Are we distinct in any way? Are we different in any way than the culture in which we live? We who, who say we belong to God must ask ourselves whether we're different than the society around us. As our, as our country, our, our culture races to another famine, not food, not material things, but a famine of the word being preached, being lived out, being believed. We're in it. Do you see it? Do you sense it in your own lives, in your community in which you live? So we're not instructed in the Bible to withdraw from the world. You live in the world. We don't live like the world. God didn't take us out. He left us here to live distinct, to live differently. Well, we've looked at the first two chapters here. What can we learn? The first thing, and I'm going to come back to this because I think it's really important. Joseph lived out his theology. There's no anger from him, no revenge, no, no gloating. Joseph sees the sovereign hand of God in everything that happened. And he's able to do this because of his theology. You all seated here have a theology. Every single one of you. Do you realize that? You all have a theology. You have a theology of God and a theology of man. Does your theology work? Theology is what you believe about God. What are the results from your theology worked out? Does your theology of God, theology proper, and your theology of man, anthropology, have their basis in the word of God? If we understand who God is and who man is, we will be able to avoid many of the pitfalls in life. Proper theology, the study of God, will keep us from accusing God of evil as he works in our lives and brings about his glory. When we realize that God's greatest desire is for his own glory, then we'll be able to endure when we're wronged, when we're misjudged and abused and inconvenienced. The more we study God, the more we understand his providence and his sovereignty in our lives. You understand that yet again, through story after story, that he's committed for our best and for his glory. But we also have to have a right anthropology, the right theology of man if we're to live in this world. And that's perhaps where we get tripped up a lot. That's perhaps where I have a lot of the issues that I talk about with people here in the church and outside the church. See, a proper anthropology will, will keep us from thinking more of man than we should. We will not be quick to attribute power to man when it rightly belongs to God. And we'll remind ourselves that man is sinful and fallen and frail 
And when people fail you, when they hurt you, when they disappoint you, we'll understand. That's what they're created to do. No, they're not created to do that. They're created to honor and glorify God. But because of the fall, that's what they do. But in all of that, it's not outside of the control of God. And he is sovereign over every human being on earth. And nothing happens. Nothing happens outside of God's control. And you remind yourself that the wicked will not go unpunished. And we taught that to kids this week, that God is just. That God is fair. Does your theology work? Is your theology based upon the Bible? The second thing that we see in these chapters is that life doesn't always get easier the longer we live. It's humbling to recognize. How old is Jacob here? 130. I hope I don't live that long. That's old. He's, he has lived a long time, and here God is teaching him. And Jacob's journey teaches us that we will never get to an age where trusting God is easy or ordinary. We're, we're always learning. We're always growing. There will never be a time in your life where you have learned all the lessons that you're going to learn. Even on your deathbed, you're, you're still learning. And there will always be obstacles to overcome and fears to face and sins to mortify and journeys to take. Serving God isn't just a young man's game where the senior saints just check out and watch from the sidelines. God is still working on you. God is continuing to stretch you. Friends, keep following him. And sometimes God answers in ways that you don't expect. God would take his people out of the land of promise so that they would be grown and sanctified and that we bring them back in the land of promise many years later. And God is not obligated to work on our time clock. He's sovereign over that too. So we've seen chapter 45 and 46, now chapter 47. In this, Joseph is finally re reunited with his family. The sufferings of Joseph to, to get them to this point come into clearer focus as we begin to understand the plan for God's people. Verse 1, so Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan and they are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to his brothers, what's your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were and they said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. See, in this, Joseph selects five brothers to come with him, probably the ones that would make the best impression. I don't know why. Probably it's an intimidating meeting at this point. Pharaoh was king. He's, a, he's viewed as like a god to his people. He's prestigious meeting. And so they all sit there. This is why they have the, the advice that Joseph gives him beforehand because of the, the significance of this meeting. But it's the kindness of Pharaoh 
and God working this to allow them to, to come and live there. Also, I believe it's based upon the service of Joseph and his service to the people of Egypt. But this section, this is a thing that, that intrigued me. It presents an echo that will be heard throughout the rest of the Bible. The shepherd theme, it's prominent in redemption history. Moses becomes a shepherd of Midian before he comes a shepherd of God's people. David, King David was a shepherd. The prophets call Israel's leaders their shepherds. The Savior's own birth was announced to who? Shepherds first. God gives shepherds to the churches in the New Testament to lead them, called pastors. And the most important image is that God being our chief shepherd as seen in Psalm 23. But it all cultivates in the good shepherd laying down his life for his sheep and Jesus Christ coming to earth. And friends, if you're here this morning and this shepherd analogy is lost on you, you might be a lost sheep yourself. And what do lost people, lost sheep most desperately need? A shepherd. Pastors, shepherds like me are sent to, to tell you these things, but we're only under shepherds. The chief shepherd is Christ himself. The good shepherd, the chief shepherd, the one who laid down his life for the sheep. He died for his sheep so that they have life. So friends, trust in the one who is worthy. Trust in our great shepherd today. Repent of your sins of trusting in yourself and trust in him. If you're asking questions, if this is on your radar at all and searching thoughts, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to understand this, friends, you need to ask. You need to first pray and ask God for clarity, but come find us. This is why we're here. This is why I'm employed by the church. I want to come and, and walk alongside you and, and give you answers to what it means to be a sheep and to understand that Christ is your great shepherd, the good shepherd who laid down your life for you. So find us. Email me. Call me. Talk to one of us, myself or the other elders. We, we want to walk you through and understand what it means to follow Christ. In verse 7, he continues, And Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Here's Jacob, a simple shepherd over a family of 70 in the land now leaving their homeland because of famine, standing before the leader of the not-so-free world. He's standing there in fulfillment of God's word. Many years earlier, God spoke to Abraham in Genesis 15. If you know this, it says in Genesis 15, verse 13 and 14, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. See, God planned it all those years before. God said they would sojourn to a land, Egypt. And all that he promised to Abram, 
came true. In verse 27, thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt and the land of Goshen and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years so the days of Jacob, the years of his life were 147 years. There would be prosperity for God's people in Egypt. God had not forgotten his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There would still be a covenant people no matter where they would find themselves. There are no borders on God's blessing. He can bless them just as easily in Egypt as he did in Canaan. And in verse 29, as we finish the chapter, and when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And he answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. And God would be faithful to his people. They would prosper in the land, but the chapter ends with Jacob yearning for his land, the promised land at the end of his life. And he recounts God's blessings to them and makes them swear to take them back to the promised land after his death. And this is a reminder to all who live and prosper in this land. Regardless of where we find ourselves, no matter how wealthy we become, we all live in the land of our affliction. This isn't our home. Friends, this is all Egypt. All the blessings we have in this life will fade away. So I ask, where do your possessions lie? We tend to get possessed by the possessions that we buy. Where do your possessions lie? See, our greatest treasure should not be here, friends. Our future is not in this, in this world. Our lives are hidden in heaven. And that's what we should long for. This right here, no matter how good it is, it's all Egypt. It's all Egypt. Don't be fooled. Don't believe this is it. It's not. Christian, you were made for more than this earth. Made for more. Well, I know your outline says that we're going to go into chapter 48, but I made an executive decision to not do that. So we're going to look at chapter 48, 49, and 50, Lord willing, next week. So you have to come back. And as I end here, the question of my message, the title is, Do You Know How to Forgive? And the more we dwell on the gospel, the better we're prepared to forgive others who sin against us, even when they don't ask for forgiveness. And we can pluck out those seeds of bitterness by learning how to forgive them. True forgiveness doesn't deny that actual wrongdoing happened. True forgiveness is looking at the offender in the eye, knowing what they did, acknowledging their offense, and forgiving them anyway. But all forgiveness for the Christian is impossible apart from the grace of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the proof that you and I are forgiven is that we forgive others. If we think that our sins are forgiven by God and we refuse to forgive somebody else, we're making a mistake. We have never been forgiven. The man who knows he has been forgiven only in and through the shed blood of Christ is a man who must forgive others he cannot help himself. Christians, forgive. That's what
what it means to be Christian. Are you forgiving others? Jesus forgave those with wickedness. Jesus forgave the prostitute, the tax collector, the blasphemer. Jesus is the example. Why should we forgive? Christian, it's because Christ has forgiven you. When Titus says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done in righteousness. It's not because we met him in halfway somehow. It's not because we're, we cleaned ourselves up. It's not because we can do enough to earn God's favor, but it was because of his mercy, because of his love. And we're here this morning, Christian, because Jesus Christ didn't say with cold, hatred, indifference, just give them what they deserve. He didn't say that. No, Jesus pities the thief. He pities the drunkard. He pities the abuser. He pities the pornographer. And don't you kid yourselves for one minute, Jesus Christ pities the educated and self-sufficient and elite and the moral and the religious. And he forgives them all, not because of what they do, but because of what Jesus Christ did. That's how we can forgive. For Joseph to forgive his brothers was extremely hard. But he saw God in the midst of this. His theology was working out. And if we see how the Lord has worked in our lives, we'll be eager to forgive. So don't forget the gospel, friends. If you're a Christian here this morning, you've been forgiven so much. Be ready to forgive others, just as Christ has forgiven you. This morning, we're gonna celebrate communion together. So I'm gonna ask the men that are serving to come up here right now as I continue. We celebrate communion once a month and as we transition, we know this issue of forgiveness is seen most clearly in Jesus dying for us on the cross. See, forgiveness costs the lifeblood of the Son of God. When Romans says we're, we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, it means that he was paying the debt we owed to God for our sins. This is what makes the cross good news. It was what makes the gospel good news. See, at the cross, we see what Christ did for us freely and fully and we're forgiven because of the cross. So I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna join in together with the communion service. Father, we thank you that we can be reminded yet again of what you did for us on the cross. We recognize this, this communion service, this meal together is for those only who are trusting in you. It's for believers who have turned from their sins and are trusting in you, and I pray that we'd be reminded again. And I pray for those that are seated here that are not, that they would witness this, that they would see this, they would observe the difference here as, as Christians, as believers, that we, we trust in you. You are the only way to have eternal life. And we thank you that we can remember that here this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.